Well, good morning. Nice to see uh, you all this morning, this beautiful uh, spring morning. I'm uh, Nathan, for those of you who don't know me, and I have the privilege this morning of uh, bringing God's word uh, to you. I'm just uh, handing out a, uh, it's just a page of scripture. I'm going to be using that particular version this week. It's uh, the New American Standard Bible. It's not a common version amongst us. If you've got a uh, electronic device, you can look it up, but I thought it'd be easier if you just have it before you and you can actually do some uh, sermon notes on the back if that's what you desire. So that's the, the, the text we'll be using today. If I was to say to you, who is the uh, most famous New Zealander? What would be your answer? No, it's not me. You know, my sphere of influence is rather small compared with famous New Zealanders. Now, to be a famous New Zealander, you'd have to have the title of Sir. Or, be fun? Hmm? Sir Edmund Hillary. Outstanding. Sir Edmund Hillary is a living legacy. He's actually now dead, but he was a living legacy when, when I grew up. And uh, the history behind Sir Edmund Hillary was he was the first first person to ascend and descend Mount Everest, uh, tallest peak in the world, at 10,000 metres. He did that in the 50s. Uh, He was a mountaineer of uh, some acclaim. However, there's another mountaineer of of great fame in New Zealand, and his name is uh, Rob Hall. His story is sometimes less known. Rob Hall was uh, probably some 15, 20, 25 years after Sir Ed, and he was an extremely good mountaineer. And uh, at that point in time, when he was doing his treks to the summit of Everest, he was uh, the only guy who had ascended to Everest on five occasions without any Sherpa help. So that's quite a significant uh, when you're climbing up that particular mountain. Evidently, the last couple of thousand feet, or you know, five, six hundred meters, is known as the death zone. Uh, air is thin. Uh, to walk a step forward would take the energy it would take to probably sprint a, a thousand yards. And uh, Rob Hall was was a very, very experienced climber. However, on his final ascent up the mountain, he was hosting and and taking some people up the mountain as they were doing in those days. He started making some compromises on that ascent that an experienced person shouldn't have made. And as he made those compromises, one compromise after another, it resulted in disastrous consequences. The consequences was that he actually lost his life along with another guide and uh, two of the, uh, the men and women that he was taking to, to the summit. As I said, he was very, very experienced. He knew what good mountaineering practice was. He'd been to the, the roof of the world more than anybody else at that point in time. And yet he compromised. And his compromise 
was based on the fact that one in his party, a single par a fellow in the party of five or six, had tried to reach the summit on four or five previous occasions and never had made it. And because of the, the altitude and the effort required in the last couple of thousand feet, this man pleaded with Rob Hall, please stay an extra half an hour so we can reach the summit together. Unfortunately, Rob Hall compromised and stayed that extra half an hour. By doing so, the weather closed in. And he knew the weather was going to be turning bad because when you climb Mount Everest, you only have a one window of hope to get there where things are in perfect order. And he knew this weather front was coming, but he, he chose to compromise. And he was disobedient to his base camp's commands, and it cost him his life. As we have walked through the book of First Peter, we've seen the same sort of exhortations that Peter is giving to, to these believers, in many case new believers. And as we enter into chapter 4 today, we see that he continually is instructing them to, to stand firm in God's grace, <coughs> to live a life with no compromise. To know the truth and to, to stand by truth, to be an obedient follower of Christ. That's where Peter's starting to take his argument and starting to take his instruction in this letter. We're, we're towards the end of it. And he, wanted to leave, he wants to leave a lasting, final command. And I think you could put this in blazing lights. Christian, don't compromise. That's the message he wants to get through. So let's read the text together. First Peter uh, 4, 1 to 7, it's on your sheet of paper, or you can turn to it in your, in, in your Bibles. And as I said, I'm reading from the, the New American Standard Bible today. The reason I'm doing that is because I, th I think uh, the way they have interpreted the original into English is very good for this particular portion. I think it will be helpful as we go through. 1 Peter 4 verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Because he who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of your of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel, for this purpose, being preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it 
and serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks uh, is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So I said this is some final instructions. We've been in these final instructions for some weeks. He, he starts that back in chapter 3 verse 8. And now he refocuses his letter, his communication to these new believers who are scattered throughout Asia. And he starts with the simple observation. Therefore, since Christ has suffered, and he, you know, he's just been talking about that in, in 3.18, that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. God Christ's suffering and sacrifice had a purpose so that we could have relationship with the God of the universe. And he reminds him, since Christ has suffered in this way, he suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves. It's a, it's a military term. It's a term that you would use if you were preparing for a battle. So if you are preparing for a battle, you don't pack your sandwiches. Right? If you're preparing for a battle, you don't worry what socks you're wearing. If you're preparing for battle, you, you get yourself weapons that are going to help you in that battle. And this is a, the sense in which he wants to say to these folks, arm yourselves in, with the same way of thinking. That's what you arm yourselves. What sort of thinking? The way that Christ thought. You know, elsewhere in Scripture, we have this picture and metaphor of arming yourself. Ephesians 6 is a classic, right? Put on the full armor of God. As Christians, put on the full armor of God. Why? So you can be protected. Why? So you can be offensive and you can, not offending somebody, but as an offense, you know? So you can actually go forward in battle with the word of God, with the helmet of salvation, with the breastplate of righteousness. Those things are important in a world that increasingly is going down the drain with morality and values. So he's saying, arm yourselves, but arm yourselves with a particular way of thinking. Now this has been a strong part of Peter's uh, argument in this letter. Remember way back in chapter 1, verse 13, he says, Prepare your minds for action by being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace of God that's going to be revealed <coughs> to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The mind is an incredibly important thing when it comes to serving Christ. And he reiterates it here. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So that to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, you're no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. He's really trying to reinforce the fact that 
you must strengthen yourselves by thinking just like Christ thought. How do you know what Christ thought? It's in here. So to arm yourselves, you need to understand his word. So our matter of our thinking or our intentions, or as we talk about it today, our cognitive response. Have you heard that term, our cognitive response? Uh, is important in the battle. Uh, a cognitive response. I came across this term when I first came to Australia because we, we didn't think a lot of New Zealand, but we came to Australia. And all of a sudden, I went through some, uh, you know, psychometric testing and yes I passed no. <laughs> went through some psychometric testing for a, for a job I was about to, to embark upon and it was really interesting because in this psychometric testing I was stuck in a place for about two hours in a role play with uh, different staff members that were, were trying to role play what it was actually going to be like when I arrived in my workplace if I secured the job uh, and what they were testing is my cognitive abilities. You see, your cognitive ability is, is what you think comes out in your behavior. And that's what Peter is trying to do here. He's saying, if you are arming your mind and your thinking with the thoughts of Christ, that is going to come out in your behavior. And that's important. And just as an aside, it was really humorous because I did get the job. And when I got to the workplace, the role play I'd done with these two particular gentlemen, I had these now, I had these staff members, and it was perfect. <laughs> it was absolutely perfect. They they'd managed to get the characters down to a T. So it was just like, you know, deja vu. There we go. It was uh, quite humorous. But you see, the core here for Peter is saying, think this way, have your intentions this way, um, think like Christ thought, especially in relation to suffering. And what was Christ's example? Go back to chapter 2 and we'll read it. It's pretty simple. Chapter 2, verse 22. And she'll start at verse 23. When he was reviled... He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who, ju who judges justly. That was Christ's example amidst suffering. When he was reviled, when he was slandered, when he was talked against, he did not talk in return. When he was threatened, he uttered no threats in return. He wasn't um, concerned about vengeance. He wasn't concerned about having his own way in that process. But what did he do? Christ entrusted himself to God. Christ entrusted himself to the justice of the Father. Christ entrusted himself because he knows God is going to judge righteously.
That's the type of thinking we need to have. When we're slandered, when we're reviled, when we, we are in the midst of the battle, when we're threatened, step back and entrust those things to God. The word tells us, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He will revile, he will repay. may not be in the moment, but it will be in eternity. So that's what Peter is starting to, to drill down to these folks. He's saying, this is, what, this is the way you need to think. This is the way, if you think, this is the way you'll act. You won't revile and return, you won't utter threats but you'll hand things across to the one who righteously judges. And then we have the end of the verse. It talks about you do this because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So what does that mean? It's quite an unusual phrase in in terms of uh, this verse well I know what it doesn't mean uh, firstly it's not talking about Christ here it's talking about believers okay? the subject of ceasing from sin is those who are arming themselves those who have uh, accepted Christ so the subject is the believer Secondly, what it's not talking about what Paul talks about. Paul in Romans talks about this whole uh, issue of sin being dealt with uh, in a forensic fashion. But Peter's theology throughout this letter is he demonstrates that sin is actually the works of the flesh. It's the things you do in disobedience to God. He's not talking about the the realm and dominion of sin. He's talking about the actual act. Uh, So he's not talking about the power and dominion of sin that has been conquered at the cross. He's saying ceasing from sin in 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 the respect is that you're living a life of obedience. You're dealing with, with, with sin. See, I think what he really is doing here, and this is an important lesson for us all, is he's giving his readers a choice. You see, and we'll get this as we go through the context of the passage, he's saying, look, you can take the path of least resistance. You... um, You can go along with society's uh, values, norms, and practices. Or, being obedient to God, you can realize that you'll suffer the consequences of standing up for him. You'll suffer the consequences and reviling and condemnation of unbelieving family members or friends or workmates or whoever's in your circle or influence. So at the heart of it, I think what Peter is saying, I'd rather you suffer than sin. You know, and he starts to talk through this. He says, I want you to live the rest of your life in this world, the time that you have, motivated by the fact that you're followers of Christ, and that's going to make a difference. I want you to live in a, in a way that shows no compromise. 
And this attitude is explained in the next verse. So as to live the rest of your time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. This is the, 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 the clincher here. This is why you need to uh, understand what I'm saying. He's contrasting the new life. As a follower of Christ, there is a difference. There is a purpose in your new life. The purpose is that you follow the will of God. In some cases, that means you're going to suffer and not compromise. And he, again, explains this further in verses 3 through 5. Just read that again. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all of this, they are surprised, and you do not run with them in the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Can you see the, the bit of a sarcasm here? See a little bit of sarcasm? It's kind of interesting, isn't it? For the time already passed, it's sufficient for you. Look, you've had your time in the world. And this is what this letter has been saying. Don't have anything to do with the world. You've had your time. The, the New Jerusalem Bible renders it this way. You have spent quite long enough in the past. It's a good way of rendering it. And then he outlines what the past looks like, especially in the culture and the, 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 the Greco-Roman culture of the day. And all these things that are listed here, the six things that are listed, were common amongst uh, temple worship, were common amongst the parties of the time. They were, they were just common things that occurred amongst the trade guild. So, so even to work in this society, you were attached to a trade guild, and then they would impose stuff upon you that you come along to certain functions where this type of behaviour was going on. So if that was you, how would you respond as a new Christian? That's what Peter's driving at. How would you respond? So he explains the former lifestyle and, and uh, the response he explains of the unbelievers when they see a difference. This is interesting, isn't it? Because what happens with unbelievers who, in their situation here, see that the new Christian is no longer being involved in these, this course of sensuality, of drunkenness, of carousing, of drinking parties, of idolatry? The unbeliever is surprised. And all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them. In the context of First Peter, they're surprised. Well, why aren't you running with them? Don't you know it's going to probably cost you when it comes to employment? Don't you know it's going to probably cost you when it comes to serving the state? You see, the time of First Peter here is unlike the time in Rome where Nero was going mad and he was, he was slaughtering Christians. They hadn't received that yet. Their major, major contention was inside their units of community where things were starting to be stripped away from them because they were different. They were standing up for Christ. And unbelievers were saying, well, 
We're surprised, but why aren't you following us? Doesn't that happen today a little bit? You see that today? Don't your friends and associates and you know, invite you along to a particular event or or a particular party or or an occasion. And you think through that and you think, I just don't know. I don't know if that's going to be good for my testimony. I don't know if I can serve a purpose there to proclaim Christ, so I'm just going to say no. And the response will be, oh, it'll be great, it'll be great fun, you'll, you'll enjoy yourself. This is a similar sort of response here, isn't it? Nothing new under the sun. So expect this response when you behave differently for the sake of Christ. You know, the NLT uh, renders it this way. They, they are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things they do. My question to you is I hope they are surprised. I hope you're not plunging into the flood of wild and destructive things because on the outset they may seem appealing. But I've got to tell you, they will be destructive. And the unbeliever, when they, they, they see your stance, what do they do? They malign you or blaspheme you or they just blaspheme. Actually, it's probably a better rendering. As you, as you see on that little NASB sheet I've given you, some words are italicized. Those words aren't in the original. Okay, They're there to help provide meaning in the end of verse uh, 5 you is in italicized font it's not actually there so it's probably better to render this and they blaspheme so their object of their blasphemy isn't actually you their object of their blasphemy is God himself because they see what you're doing on behalf of him virtually all passages in in the Old and New Testament that use this particular word, it's talking about the defamation of God's majesty. Um, particularly in the New Testament, it's, uh, they, they blaspheme Christ. They blaspheme Christ's messianic claims. And since, you know, we as the Church of Christ and its members bear witness to, to the existence of Christ himself, Expect that blasphemy is going to occur. That's part of the suffering. So don't compromise in these areas. That's what Peter gets to, and he summarizes it in verse 7 to 9. Well, instead of compromising, this is your behaviors. But I just want to think about compromise. You know, we have in the Old Testament examples of compromise, don't we? The most common one I think of is David and Bathsheba. He compromised. The king of Israel, a man after God's own heart, saw a beautiful woman bathing on top of a building. He said, come in with me. They lay together. They had sex. 
She got pregnant. That wasn't the end of the compromise. Oh, who's your husband, Uriah? Oh, he's one of my he's one of my generals. Let's get him back from the battle. I want to get a report from him. I want to try and coerce Uriah to go and sleep with his wife so he may think that the pregnancy is his. Now, Uriah is really the hero of the story because he would not. He says, how can I go into my wife when my men are in battle? So, you know, David resorted to, to drunkenness and parties and he, he topped old Uriah up and they had a merry old time and said, come on, go down to your wife. No. So David's compromise continued, didn't it? He said, okay, Uriah, here's a note to the general. When you go back past this note on, and what was in the note? Uriah's death sentence. Send Uriah and some men to the, to the battlefront, to the base of the wall, and, and, and try and take the wall that way. That was just nonsense. David was a military strategist. He was a bit like Rob Hall, who was a mountaineering strategist, but he, he compromised, and he says, no, I'm going to put that man right at the front. Why? Because I want him murdered. I want to cover up my sin. He compromised. On the other side, you have, you have the wonderful example of someone who didn't compromise, like a Joseph. Right? Joseph, a handsome young man, a bit like Jason O'Donnell. You know, strikingly handsome. And you know, he's, it's this handsome young man is in casts, in, no, not cast, he's, he's serving in a very significant man's house, Potiphar. And his wife, Potiphar's wife starts making advances upon him. Did Joseph compromise? No. Joseph did not compromise. His words are this, how could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Genesis 39.9. That's the principle Peter's trying to apply here. Don't be involved in those things of the past. Don't compromise. They are going to be destructive. And if you are slandered, if there is blasphemy against God, don't worry about that either because he is the one who is going to judge righteously. You see, when you compromise, what happens is in, either in relationships or in social settings or in, even in your private thoughts and imaginations, it's a bit like a mound of dirt that erodes away slowly. You have this mountain of dirt. And, uh, you know, the erosion starts occurring. And week on week, you actually don't notice the erosion. It still looks like a mound of dirt. Perhaps within a year, you don't notice the erosion. It still looks like a mound of dirt. But three or four years' time, you might return to that place and you say, where's the mound of dirt gone? The erosion has taken place over a long period of time because that's the way compromise works. You compromise in this area, then you'll compromise in the next area. You know, example, I'll use a, a wrong relationship as Christian young men and women, older men and women. You know the truth of Scripture. Don't be unequally yoked. What does that mean? Try and maintain a relationship with other Christian people especially in the, the bounds of marriage. But you, you might be lonely. You might 
struggle with, with loneliness and, oh, I'll compromise. I'll, I'll go out with someone who doesn't know the Lord. Compromise one. And it just continues to tumble down. I'll compromise here. I'll compromise there. I'm married. I'll compromise here on family upbringing. I'll compromise on all sorts of things. And it's just disastrous as opposed to realising that God has the right person for you. God is the one who has someone special for you. Seek him first. And all these things will be added to you. Then we get to verse 6 here. And it's a difficult verse for the gospel has for this purpose been preached. For what purpose? The gospel has been preached for the purpose of judgment. That's what it says. It's been preached even to those who are dead, that, that they may be judged in the flesh as men, that they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. This is one of the most difficult exegetical passages in, in the New Testament, along with uh, the portion in chapter 3, 18 to 22. So I'm going to try and give you some uh, navigation through this, as I think it's important. It's good for us to have good theology. There's two options here, and, and the options come around, well, uh, who, who has the gospel been preached to? Who are the dead? The gospel has been preached to the dead. Who are the dead? Does this mean that in some mysterious way that post-death you can have the gospel preached to you? Okay. Or does this mean it's just spiritually dead people? I think you can reject the spiritually dead argument based on the fact that Peter, nowhere else is in this epistle, uses the term for dead as referring to someone that's spiritually dead. He's using it as a term for physically dead. Look at 1 Peter 1, 3, 21, and this portion here. Even though it's tied even to the verse 5, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. We're talking about a physical death here, folks, not a spiritual death. So reject that particular one. Okay, so it's physically dead. Okay, so well, how do we limit that? Uh, is it those who died before Christ's coming? Uh, is it those who have died without hearing the gospel? Uh, is it, does it refer to all those who die? And I think in our Christian tradition, unfortunately, we have, we have um, applied a creed to this to try and understand it. And I want to blow this out of the water a little bit. The Apostles' Creed states this, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, and died and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. Some of our theology has been taken from this creed, and we impose it upon this particular text that does no justice to the text. And I want to just give you some options here. I think it's important. In tandem, normally we view this text, 4.6, with 3.19. So if you have your Bibles, put your, put your finger in 3.19. Because in there, we did this a couple of weeks ago, you have this uh, term that uh, Christ went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. 
and in 4.6, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that uh, though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. I just want to make these com- uh, comments to you and then just leave it there. Both 3.19 and 4.6 are different. It doesn't take too much to realize that. Where is the difference? Firstly, in uh, 3.19, the word proclaim is used. In 4.6, the word preached the good news is used. There are two different words in the original language. One is caruso for proclaim. One is egalangizomai, which is uh, preach the good news. So that's one difference. It's not the same thing. Secondly, um, the difference in the audience of the two verbs. So who's the audience? In 3.19, the audience is the spirits in prison. In 4.6, the audience is the dead. Two different audiences here. And just on the spirits in prison one, those terms are never used anywhere in the New Testament for either a human being, spirits, or for hell, prison. Different words. Probably one of the, the, uh, the better things I, I think about when I look at this verse is the word preach in 4.6 is what we call, it's in a passive mode. So that doesn't mean it's preaching done by Christ, but it refers to the preaching of Christ. So it's the preaching of Christ. This refers to the preaching of human beings about Christ, not the preaching of Christ himself. That's why the verb is passive. Therefore, this this form is really significant because it provides no support for Christ preaching the gospel in hell. No support whatsoever. And it's been an assumption based on a doctrinal position. So I guess in all that, I just want to say, folks, be careful with the stuff that we we take as gospel truth. Look at the word of God and unearth it and discover for yourselves what the text is saying. Finally, Peter, nowhere else is, right throughout this letter, he's exhorting believers to endure persecution. So why would he then, therefore, just turn around and say, well, and there's a second chance? doesn't make sense, logical sense. It makes no sense that Peter would have that intention. So how do we understand the verse? Well, I think Peter is considering the case of believers who have died physically. So believers that have died, they have suffered death like anybody else, like the whole world will suffer for the wages of sin is death. They have died physically. And you know, the unbeliever might say, well, well, look at that. There's not nothing in your faith because you just die like the rest of us. But however, from God's perspective, believers will be resurrected. Believers will be resurrected. He makes the same contrast in 3.18. As Christ suffered, he also was raised. He went from suffering to glory. In the same way you and I, who have put our faith and trust in Christ, we will suffer in this earth, but we will be raised to glory. The resurrection awaits us. So that's why we live our lives without compromise. That's why. 
and verses 7 through 11 make this fact known. This is how you live your life. And I'm not going to dwell on this too much. You can meditate on this 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 week yourselves. Read it, think through it. But the motivation is, verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. The end is near. Realize and have your focus on the things that are eternal. That Christ will come, that he will take his own. And since the end is near, you as believers should live according to God's will. That's what's already been stated. And practically, what does that look like? You're to be sober and of sound judgment in prayer. A core part of your life is praying. In a way that is sober and sound judgment basically means the same thing. It's two verbs that mean the same thing. They're synonymous. Some versions say be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Be on your knees about the things you see around about you. You live in a, in a way that shows sacrificial love. He's already touched on this back in, in chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by the obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. He's just repeating that here. Keep loving one another earnestly. This community here is vitally important to showing that community the love of Christ. We should love one another. We shouldn't be full of, of rivalries or jealousies or anything like that. That should not be so. Because Christ, through his spirit, dwells within and causes us to love one another. Should show hospitality. Verse 9. Without grumbling. <laughs> I find it funny you put that there. Show hospitality without grumbling. It probably should be the person who... Who has had hospitality shown to them? Oh, I don't like sausages. Not too bad. You're getting them anyway. <laughs> right. But you've got to realise also the culture of, of here, of Asia, is that this whole hospitality thing was a key part of Christian community. They would bring people into their homes as they were going through missionary journeys. They would um, offer them lodging because lodging was very expensive in the Roman Empire. People would stay for months. How you go with that? Why? For the advancement of the mission and that they'd offer lodging. So yeah, Peter's saying, let's continue that. Show that hospitality. Love one another and do it with a real genuineness and, and, and willingness. And finally, he says, above all, you've all received a gift. This is all-encompassing. Every one of us who has faith and trust in Christ has a gift. And uh, Peter, in this particular portion, he uh, categorizes them under two categories, speaking gifts and serving gifts. If you go back to 1 Corinthians and, and look at all the spiritual gifts, you can categorize them either under speaking gifts or serving gifts. That's what Pete does here. He says, okay, I want you to employ this gift. Firstly, employ it as a, a gift from God. It's, it's part of God's manifold, I love this term, manifold grace of God. God in his infinite wisdom has designed this body of believers to, to express his manifold grace through the gifts we each have. 
I'd love to spend more time on that, but I'm not going to. But realise these gifts are received by God's grace. They are a manifestation of God's manifold grace. They are gifts given to serve and help others, to strengthen each other in our faith. That's the primary thing of gifts, is to strengthen one another in our collective faith. All gifts involve serving and edifying others. Why? So that God may be glorified through Christ Jesus. To whom belongs all glory and dominion forever. All gifts are to be employed in the power of God. All gifts are to glorify God through Christ. So, folks, no compromise. Arm ourselves with the same intentions and thoughts of Christ. We are different in this world. Act like it. We are called to be people who do not compromise. We know the truth and live by the truth. And since the end is near, since the end is coming, and boy, don't we see that each day. Be fervent and sober and sound in your prayer. Live sacrificially towards one another. Be hospitable and use your gifts to encourage one another in the faith. Why? So God can be glorified. I'd like you to stand. We're not going to sing our last song. I'd like you to stand. Let's just pray together. Let's go away encouraged today. Let's go away encouraged to to be a people that does not compromise. There may be things here, I'm going to give you just a moment of silence that you need to deal with the Lord on, you need to repent of, and you need to say, Lord, I've compromised in this area of my life. Give me, by your Spirit, the strength to overcome that. Give you a moment to do that, and then we'll close in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your manifold grace and wisdom. We thank you for this, Peter, uh, this letter which tells us to stand firm in God's grace. And Lord, when we are called to no compromise, we know and we understand we can only do that through your power, through your spirit that indwells us. Father, we pray as a believing community that, that we will take on board these instructions in a new and real way. Father, we repent of the things that we've done that have compromised. We we just repent of the, the stuff that we are distracted by, which we know is not your truth. Father, just grant us your grace to, to change. We thank you for this instruction. We pray these things now in the powerful name of Christ our Saviour. Amen. Please enjoy some fellowship time together.